to Let's Talk About Health in Africa, a podcast in which we talk to leaders, practitioners and change makers about what needs to be done in Africa to transform and improve healthcare. My next guest on our podcast today is President Amina Gurib Fakim, the first female president of Mauritius who served from 2015 to 2018. She was the first Muslim African woman to be elected unanimously as head of state, and she became one of very few heads of states globally. President Gurib Fakim is a chemist, a biodiversity scientist, an academic and an entrepreneur. She is one of very few heads of states who were also highly accomplished scientists, like Chancellor Angela Merkel, who is a physicist, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who was a chemist, and she used her presidency to promote social and economic progress in her country and across the region. And she has used her experience, her rich experience in the service of Africa and of her country. Her work has brought her international recognition and numerous accolades, and it is my great privilege to welcome her to our podcast today. President Gurib Fakim, welcome to Let's Talk About Health in Africa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's a great pleasure to be able to have this this conversation on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Madam President. So let's start by talking about the use of science for national development. You are a great champion of Africa and of women's participation in science. You're a brilliant scientist in your own right who has served your country at the highest level. And clearly your life story suggests that you have had to make a number of leaps of faith on your journey. Why is it important for women to take risks, especially in science and in entrepreneurship? Thank you. That's a very leading question. It's a huge question. There's so many uh, parts to that, uh, to that question, but uh, I will try and tackle them uh, uh, to the best of my ability. Um, you know, uh, I think increasingly we need to ask the question uh, why we need science. I think the, pr the present uh, um, pandemic has highlighted why, if any, in fact, it has shown that, you know, we need more empowered scientists on the continent, empowered scientists who can take very quick policy decisions as well. And, uh, but, you know, this is where uh, Africa, I would not say is lagging behind, uh, because I always view Africa's progress from the vantage point of its 60-year post-colonial history. And this is true for Zimbabwe, it's true for Mauritius, almost there, 50, 53 years. And uh, we have to look at it from, th from that perspective. Then we will be able to understand uh, why we need to empower, why we need to invest in, in science, uh, because the, the current pandemic, as I said, has highlighted this, uh, has been glaring, in fact, has shown it. Now, if you look at uh, uh, science on the continent, we find that uh, if you start from a very early age, and uh, there, there are many, many uh, big gaps in the teaching and the learning of science among young girls. And uh, I'll just give you one very good example. You're from Zimbabwe. And uh, there are, of course, some far out villages in Zimbabwe. If you're trying to teach a kid the alphabet, 
the same old model applies all over you know, Africa, all over the world. We always say, you know, A will start for Apple and B for something else. Now, just imagine a kid growing out in far away, uh, you know, in, in areas, in rural areas in Zimbabwe. It's not uh, kind of being stereotyping or anything like this, but we need to put the teaching of science in context. And we increasingly need to what I call tropicalize our science teaching to young kids, young, young kids. So make it, you know, fit and relevant, fit for purpose uh, for that ecosystem where that child is growing. Then when we, the child grows up and goes to secondary school, university, we find that again, the way the approach to, to teaching science is still very much road fashion and it's not practical enough. And this is where I think I was lucky because I had teachers who were motivated, who taught me science in a very practical manner. And uh, this way, uh, you know, when you actually, when you have teachers who, who actually put it in context, and you, I also was lucky to have had this very, very big milestone in the transformative power of science. So, you know, it makes, it makes things, make things look different. And this is what we have to do. And then we look, we need to also to look at the textbooks which are given to young girls and to young boys for that matter, where we need to show the real role models, where they are, what they've done. And there's so many African role models as well. We need to showcase these uh, to these to these young kids, and then when we look at the tertiary education system, because this is where uh, the, the the break happens. I, I'll speak about the break because th from there we find that this is when brain drain starts creeping in, and because the system is not capitalized enough. There is no infrastructure, so we can promote these young people to go all the way up to university. And then when they come back, because most of them get uh, educated well, overseas, at least for some, for those who can afford it. But when they come back and they want to contribute to the, you know, to, to the research agenda of the country, if there is one, they find that the infrastructure isn't there. So I, I always say that it is the responsibility of the leadership of the continent to look at how we capitalize and how we invest in that ecosystem and how we invest in young people. Because again, if we look at it from the vantage point of 60 year post-independence history, we find that the education system has been such that the people get trained for a particular purpose to be administrators. So the focus has never been on science. So we need to relook at our education system. We need to relook at the legal framework around the research which is going on the continent so that you know, we protect this intellectual property and then we make it work for the country and for the country and for the region. So this is where I think we need to take uh, uh, the, the sciences. And this is how we would have trained many more doctors we would have retained many more doctors, we would have trained many more health workers. And again, here it's glaring in as much as 70% of those frontliners, they were women. But when you look at the decision-making process, we found that there's less than 25% of those decision-makers were there as ladies. So these are all very glaring uh, figures and gaps that we need to address. But again, when it comes to looking at investment, this is where we need to look at investment in education, and investment in health. We are finding that many countries that have had a very good uh, primary healthcare system, they were able to cope even now with the current pandemic. So it is investment, investment, and investment. 
Absolutely. Investing in creating the frameworks, the legal frameworks, the infrastructure that allows us to create an ecosystem that is conducive to developing the manpower, the skills, everything that we need to develop a thriving science, you know, science driven, sustainable development in African countries. I, and I think it's a very interesting perspective you take that we have to look at this from the 60 year post-colonial sort of history and the need to sort of decolonize that because a lot of the systems that are in place are co coming from the colonial era and they're not necessarily relevant or in context for what African young people need right now. But um, you make a distinction, uh, Madam President, between the need for, for more women in leadership and more women in power. What is that distinction? Explain it to us. Uh, I have been very uh, kind of forthcoming by making that distinction uh, because there are many women in leadership position, especially in Africa. If you look at uh, the informal sector, uh, we find that 80% of the jobs in the informal sector, they are run by women. Women are very good at leading their enterprise. And in fact, if you look at one sector, agriculture, we found that women feed Africa. Uh, there's no going around this. I mean, this is a fact. But why we need women in power and this is where I make the distinction. We need women at that table when decisions are being made, uh, be it on education, be it on health, be it on entrepreneurship, be it on any, any area. We need to have the women input there because it's only when the women are in there at that table, when that decision is being made, that it works for society, it works for the family, it works for the country, it works everywhere. So this is where we need to actually ensure that um, women are elected at that in that particular position and women not just elected. And I think as a community of women, we need to show this solidarity to make sure that she stays there. And unfortunately, I have to say this, it's uh, very often those who will bring down women, they tend to be women themselves. So this is something that we have to educate our sisters that uh, we have to learn to rise together because when we start pulling these women down, we are pulling ourselves and the women folks. And as there are so few women out there, let us as a community of women make sure that we, we actually support that lady, that woman who is there and who's making it because she becomes a role model for the younger kids. Absolutely. The scarcity mindset, right, that I have personally observed as well, and we need to do better. So decolonizing uh, the environment, the education system to create that ecosystem. You have spoken very eloquently and stated the need for Africa to own her agenda for science and innovation for sustainable development and your belief that Africa needs to strive towards scientific independence by embedding science, innovation, and technology at the heart of development priorities and policies of, of government. You've had a front row view to, to this, you know, given your career as a scientist. How well are African countries doing in captivating that vision that you have? You know, there's, there's two issues, right? I think we have to recognize, I have to recognize, and I have recognized that a lot of work is happening in our universities. 
And uh, researchers are very good at uh, publication. You know, they make, because publication, of course, is uh, uh, make it or, you know, well, you, you either publish or you perish, as they say. So it is uh, the finality of an academic to publish the result finding. And uh, that academic, of course, moves up the ladder. And the academic ladder gets promotion and all the rest of it. But I think as university management, they have to look at the other side of things, how these data can be protected and how it can become used, how it can be used to become an engine of wealth creation. Because at the end of the day, uh, we need research. We, we actually are very good in Africa uh, to get licenses from uh, other countries to address our developmental challenges. So if we actually make sure that we protect the intellectual property of these findings, we find that uh, it can it can go uh, that extra mile uh, in terms of um, getting data, getting knowledge right from our own region. Why it's important, you know, if we are going to make changes to our policy, uh, we need to address this because we need a rule based. We need to have data which actually generated locally so that we can address the challenges locally. That's that's one of the reasons why I think it's very very important uh, to be to generate data locally from the continent and from the countries in the region. Now the second thing is that you know when you look at uh, even now we are having this conversation. We're talking about uh, intellectual property removal for development of vaccine. We have seen too much resistance. So the intellectual property is 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 held elsewhere. So when our countries, our regions want to access that technology to address our own development challenges, we have to pay royalties. And uh, it'd be interesting to look at the figures that Africa spends on uh, on licensing of technologies developed elsewhere. So just think of the amount of uh, funds uh, well, uh, in terms of uh, currency that we can save uh, on the continent by generating our own. I'm not saying that we don't have to, uh, to actually uh, get licensed, mm. think that, but there's so much that we can still do. And, you know, by doing so, we are, we are creating jobs. We are, we are innovating. And when we are innovating, when we're creating jobs, we make sure that these young people who are being trained on the continent, not forget that we have, we're talking increasingly about the youth dividend. So how do we empower them? How do we create jobs? How do we innovate and make sure that they stay on the continent and address the challenges and the development challenges of Africa and not die in the Mediterranean? So we need to create that opportunity and to do, be able to do that. That's why we have to create the ecosystem and uh, invest in that ecosystem so that not only we actually address our own challenges with homegrown solutions, but also spend less on importing new technologies from outside. And uh, by so doing, we also encourage partnership. And this is what we need. And partnership, not just with uh, countries and institutions of the North, but partnership with our own diaspora. And there's so many of them talented out there. And interestingly, they would like to contribute more, but for them to come, I mean, just to give you a very, very uh, simple example. Why would a, a high flying talented African who is out there, I don't know, teaching in Harvard or in Stanford or wherever it is, and why would they want to come to a, you know, hardly an institution where there is hardly infrastructure for that talented African to perform. So these are questions that we have to, the hard question we have to, to ask. There's talent out there, there's resources out there. And one thing as well, 
this continent of ours is not a poor continent. We have, in fact, if you look at Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe has so many acres and acres of arable land. And if we look at the entire sector of agriculture, we are looking at a $1 trillion business, right? Only one area. And Africa is endowed with 60% of the world's entire arable land. And if you look at the, a country like China, it has 9%, right? So just imagine if we were to drive only one sector, Africa, Africa agriculture, what can that do? A country like DRC has got enough uh, minerals and it is supporting the mobile industry with the coal town, with so many other, other minerals mm -hmm. out there. So Africa is not a poor continent. And many African countries, they are indeed very, very rich. But this is something, a conversation we need to have all the time. Why we are where we are, is it because we don't have the leadership? Is it because there are too many influences which are preventing the growth of the continent? I mean, these are questions which you mentioned earlier on. We need to decolonize the mind. And this is an area we need to look at, the paradox of why Africa is rich and yet poor. Madam President, you are speaking to some really, really critical issues here. The fact that African nations are not investing in development, in creating the infrastructure, the ecosystem that you need for, for sustainable development. Those are critical, really critical and important issues. And then, of course, partnership. Partnership is quite important, but then you have partnerships where there are usually significant power disparities, which means that the intellectual property that is generated or is coming out of Africa often is licensed elsewhere by people who are not necessarily, um, and it's not shared by people in Africa. So they have to license that as well. I think absolutely. So the legal frameworks of how we do this, I think, you know, these are all very, very important area. All of these things so critical to finding answers to our most pressing development challenges in climate change, food security, health security, and just dealing with the pandemic like we are at the moment. So do you think the COVID pandemic might be the straw that will break the camel's back by awakening Africa to all of these issues that you highlight? You know, one thing we have to understand is that uh, the COVID is not the first pandemic that, that the continent has known. And uh, also we must highlight that uh, malaria kills about 500,000 people in the continent every year. And that's not highlighted, right? And yet it's happening. Every year it's happening, malaria is a big killer. So I think we've had our dose of uh, calamities, health-related calamities that, you know, gets, you know, just gets mentioned only in statistics. Uh, this one here uh, is being highlighted for reasons that we know, and uh, you know it's, it, it is still a, a major issue. Uh, but we must highlight that uh, Africa has had her dose of these, and I'm sure it's not the last one either. You know, it is one of many that will happen, will come and go. And uh, you've mentioned something about uh, uh, you know again the issue of technology, the issue of uh, uh, what the COVID has revealed. I think one thing that COVID has revealed very, very strongly is how there is such disparity 
and it has increased inequality. It has highlighted, it has revealed how unequal the society is. And uh, so again, the takeaway message for our leaders is do we still need to be in that position if there is a next pandemic which comes which comes along and there will be. And one area that we will also see happening very soon, I think once we get uh, COVID behind us, is the challenges that climate change is posing to us. And when I say us, I mean the African continent because this continent has hardly generated any greenhouse gas. And yet we are going to be bearing the brunt of it. And we have already seen even in Zimbabwe how crops have failed, right? And these crops have failed because of changing rainfall pattern is happening. And uh, if you look at migration, migration has happened also because of climate related risk and challenges to some regions in the world where there has been a lot of food insecurity and uh, you know all that we, we know. So COVID has highlighted, I think uh, what the COVID uh, has highlighted is precisely the divide that exists and what is worse is that now with new technology, those people living out uh, in faraway Kenya, in faraway Sudan, they can see what's happening in real time because of the access of social media. So if you talk about uh, uh, the challenges that COVID has presented, it has highlighted, yes, inequality. Uh, it has highlighted also uh, well, very egoistical uh, approach when we talk about vaccine nationalism. It is still not there, but I think it has accentuated something which is again very, very critical, how quickly we need to run in that space uh, to actually make our institution fit for purpose. And this is the challenge that leaders will have for a long, long time. And uh, I think also, as I said, we have a young population, tech savvy, accessing social media. I think the position of the leaders is going to be very, very uncomfortable now because questions will be asked. Accountability will be sought. So it is time that we get our house in order so that we can answer, we can account to these young people who are asking for solution, who are looking at the future with, with dread. Because in some instances, some countries, the future isn't very, very bleak. So how do we tackle this? What future do we leave behind for these young people? I mean, these are the questions that we should be asking ourselves and we should be also you know, discussing very openly and very honestly. What legacy do we leave behind? Have we done enough to protect our environment? And here I, I have a, you know, I've done something which uh, was looked down upon. I've documented traditional knowledge because this was an area which was, of course, totally marginalized during the colonial days for reasons that uh, the, we, we know. And I've put that forward. The question we need to ask ourselves as leaders, as Africans, do we value our own culture? Are we proud to be Africans? Are we proud to eat African? Are we proud to think African? Are we proud to wear African? So I think if we go beyond this, I think we would have done a great job because we would have then truly decolonized our mind. Absolutely. I think really, really important. We will come to some of those issues in great detail in a moment, but just maybe to pick on a point you made about the work you've been doing, the great 
and necessary and needed work of documenting the traditional knowledge, the traditional medicines and so forth in Mauritius, possibly beyond as well. So you've done a great job in the area of protecting biodiversity, which is your specialty area. And Mauritius, of course, has a rich biodiversity with many medicinal plants that are coming out of Mauritius, which are a source of active pharmaceutical ingredients, which are very highly sought after by the pharma industry, the cosmetic industry, the wellness industry, and the extraction and exploitation of those resources that are coming out of Mauritius, out of any African countries are often not benefiting the people. They leave damage to the environment, the natural habitat of many species of plants and animals. We've seen this in the Niger Delta. What would you like to see Africans do to better protect those natural resources that we have, that we are not valuing enough, that we often hand over for others to exploit at our expense? I'll ask you a question. Um, how many cocoa trees grow in Belgium? How many cocoa trees grow in Switzerland? Where does the cocoa tree grow? 65% of the world cocoa production come out of West Africa from two countries, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. Do they transform the cocoa? That's the question we ask. If you look at the cosmetic industry, shea butter, where is it produced? How much goes back to the women who actually produce shea butter? How much transformation is happening on the continent? And I think this is one of the objectives of the free trade agreement, right? It has been signed and ratified. It's been rolled out as from the 1st of January of this year. And I think we need to really look at the internal African market. There is no reason why products which are grown in Ghana can be, can be used in Kenya or in Mauritius for that matter. And I think this is the hard question we need to look at. How much transformation of our resources that we are bringing uh, so that again, as I said, it creates innovation, it creates jobs. That's one thing. That's, I'm just looking at some of the food crops and the crops, which of course, which touch on the uh, agricultural sector. Let's look at the medicine sector. You know, 80% of the world's population still depend on this is the WHO figures, still depend on herbal knowledge for the primary health care. And now if you look at some of the statistics that came out of WHO, 80% of uh, the people uh, in Ethiopia, for example, they will resort to uh, traditional medicine when they have some issues, health issues, of course, not uh, the complicated one, but well, even the complicated one, sometimes they, they find solutions in the plants and animal bioresources. And interestingly, they compared this to many people in Germany who are increasingly turning to green medicine, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, if so much uh, truth lies in our resources, our traditional knowledge, why is it that we are not value adding these? Why are we not adding value to this knowledge in order to generate the appropriate medication, the appropriate uh, you know, solutions to our own healthcare problems? And part of the reason is that for too long, we have kind of uh, marginalized traditional knowledge. And now if you look at a country like China, I'm not saying Africa, of course, is 55 countries, so China is one country, but I think we look at the mindset. The Chinese government has given equal 
uh, value to allopathic medicine, modern medicine, to Chinese traditional medicine. And if you look at, if you ask any Chinese what they think of the traditional remedies, I mean, this is the first thing they'll turn to when they are when they're feeling poorly. So this is again a change in mindset. And again, as you have rightly said, there are so many uh, new plants and new, um, you know, so much diversity on our continent that we can pull from to divine our own solution. And as I said, if you look at uh, some of the plants which have given ingredient to the big industry, the pharma industries, many of them come from the tropical region because it's the region which is most diverse. My region, Mauritius and the Mascarene Island is one of the biodiversity hotspots. And there are so many across Africa which are biodiversity hotspots which need protection. Again, what do we do? Are we doing much? Are we doing enough? to safeguard our own resources. And the thing is that it's a race against time because we find that uh, climate change is impacting the forest. And there are, of course, uh, human uh, settlements which are going right into the forest. So, I mean, all these are challenges we have to do. But I think the, the question, the overarching question we have to ask ourselves, are we doing enough? And my short answer is no, we are not doing enough. So what must be done? I mean, these are questions we need to be asking our leaders again and ourselves, because at the end of the day, we can't put everything down to the to, to the political sector. We also have to look at ourselves as individual willing to make a, make a difference. And I think we should all be engaged in that space. Absolutely. Ask yourself what you can do for your country, not what your country can do for you. Right. Um, yes. You mentioned a very important point no cocoa trees growing in switzerland and and you know yet they have a big chocolate industry and so forth so value addition very important for africa but it has been a struggle for many of our countries in our post-independence journey to transform our economies from over dependence on agriculture or on on resources exporting raw mineral resources raw natural resources somewhere else to be processed and brought back to us at a much higher cost. Tell us about Mauritius post-independence journey to transform the economy and how you think you have done in terms of that transition towards diversification. You know, what takeaways you think that might have for others? Uh, Mauritius is an interesting case. And uh, recently there has been a lot of discussion as to whether there has been a Mauritian miracle. And my short answer is that there never was a, an economic miracle per se, and I will explain, is that we have a 50 plus uh, independent, post-independence history. And just before independence, a couple of Nobel Prize winners have said that we are uh, in a lost case. Uh, a lost case because we are too far away from the market. We are a small island. We are subjected to the, you know, all the challenges of weather. We had cyclones and it's not accessible so you know we're a basket case and we're doomed for failure right then came independence in 1968 and uh, then we had uh, just before independence we had some entrepreneur who actually set up the nucleus which was to become our national airline and after independence what happened was that three important decisions were taken immediately after independence one of them to provide uh, free health care free health care to all there was a move as well to control uh, fertility. So there was a move for controlling the family size. 
And uh, then there was another important uh, um, issue that was important decision was taken, which was to provide social safety nets. And uh, social safety net is so important because when you're moving from a highly, uh, well, we were entirely dependent on sugar because sugar contributed 92% of our GDP and the per capita income uh, at that time was about $200 per year. Now we are just about 10,000. So it shows that there has been a massive uh, uh, diversification of and also decision uh, taking, um, creating the ecosystem. So every 10 years, uh, we actually added a new pillar to diversify the economy. But I think what was the biggest game changer was when there was a student protest in 1975. And in 1976, and precisely the student protest was because there was too much stereotype on the education, the textbooks which were given to kids, and also all the schools were in the urban areas and not enough in the rural areas. So when education became free in 1976, I think to me personally, that was a very big changer because the, and it was free for all. So the parents didn't have to think as to whether they need to educate the boys, which of course made economic sense. And they could also educate the girls. And these women who were out there cutting sugarcane in the fields, they had a modicum education. So they could be taken in the uh, fledgling uh, industrial zone and uh, we started also the free zone at the time. So the textile sector became a big absorber of uh, women labor force. And this moved on. In the 1990s, we, we started with the financial services and the university that was set up as a development university provided the trained manpower because the discussions were there between the private sector, close collaboration, private sector, public sector, so that the pillars of the economy could be added to the, well, the pillars could be added to the economy from, from then on. So every 10 years, we started adding a new pillar. And by 2000, we had added, of course, IT and the financial services, the banking, the offshore, and you know all this, the financial sector, because we realized with the size that we have 2000 square kilometer of land, we will never be able to compete with those who are emerging. Uh, in 2001, we saw the admission of China and the WTO. And there's no way that we could compete, but we had to use our strategic advantage uh, to actually build the economy. And this to me has been the, what we call the economic miracle. And there's one thing as well that uh, we also have to flag is that we need to have election every five years. This is part of the constitution. It's a bit complicated to actually change the constitutional provision that we need to have election every five years. And we know that when there is election every five years, um, those who have been given a mandate, of course, gets judged uh, by the end of the mandate. And uh, the, the vision, the downside is that the vision may be short term because it's still five years, but the uptick of this is that uh, they have to work, they have to deliver. And uh, so this is how uh, the country emerged. So strategic thinking, good decision, investment in the, in the, in the various uh, ecosystem. Uh, but I think right now we are at a crossroad. We need to see where the economy is going to go. If we are going to go into knowledge, knowledge economy, how much investment are we making in that space? And uh, we have to run faster than we can walk because we started crawling, we started walking, and we didn't have time to really you know, start walking fast. We have to run. 
But I think we have to go back to the good old uh, value that uh, the African uh, uh, statement has been, has been made on, on you know, how we can go far, we can go together. Uh, you know, these kind of things that we have to look. And I think being part of the African Union, uh, we have signed up to the free trade agreement. I think we have to look towards uh, Africa uh, for, for the emergence of our country. And uh, now that uh, there are many geopolitical, uh, you know, the, there are so many moving parts, at least from that perspective. Now we are strategically placed in the Indian Ocean. We have to use our position to make uh, our position work for us. And we straddle two big continent, we straddle the African continent, we straddle the Asian continent, and by virtue of the diversity of our people, uh, we should be able to make it work for us too. But of course, in collaboration with our peers, with our partners, where Africa, of course, is a very, very important uh, partner, as far as I'm concerned, speaking here personally, uh, I think uh, the policy, the foreign policy should be more geared towards Africa. Absolutely. So, and, and of course, the other thing there that you point to is the accountability. What changed for Mauritius to be able to make these strides whilst you were building one pillar at a time every 10 years? And I guess yes. that's the way to go. You can't do everything in one go, but you can make steady progress. And that accountability for me is particularly important when there is accountability to the people clearly things start to happen um, because there are consequences to not delivering. So, and, and we will come back to the strategic importance of Mauritius um, for the African continent in a moment, but let's, let's jump onto the issue of health security. And you mentioned earlier how traditional medicine is valued in China um, relative to how we view it on, on the continent. Uh, I think, you know, it will be good to explore that a little bit more. You have said that for every disease known to men, there is a plant that cures it. And across Africa, many of our people are living in rural communities that are mostly poor. There are no hospitals or they are very far away, no pharmacies that, you know, and had to find pharmacies where they could get conventional medicines, which are quite often unaffordable and beyond reach to them. So what can we do? And, and clearly, um, traditional medicine, I don't, at least what I see from Zimbabwe, it's not something that we appreciate. In fact, people tend to look down upon it and yet it could be a solution. And yet a lot of the solutions that we would seek are very much based on those ingredients that we are shunning in our own communities. What could be done to increase the value of traditional medicines within our communities? Um, you have rightly said that uh, we tend to look down on our own culture and our own resources. I mean, this is the biggest uh, mistake that we can make. Uh, because uh, what happens is that uh, very often the knowledge that we actually have, that is uh, owned most of the time by women, um, they get taken out and uh, they get really packaged and sold back again to Africa. But uh, my mantra has been that if we start relooking and documenting this knowledge, because every time you know we lose an elderly, especially an elderly lady in Africa, we lose a library. And this is something that uh, we have to, well, again, bring this to the leadership of the country that, you know, we need to start looking at this again. And, you know, um, interestingly, 
uh, when you're making the case to the policymakers, um, scientists, again, here I make my mea culpa until I came to occupy the, the position I occupied, is that we tend to speak to ourselves. Uh, we don't communicate effectively, and we tend to assume that uh, those leading the country, they will understand. I think this is, again, what we have to do is relook at our communication strategy and relook at uh, how we actually share this knowledge and share the information uh, with the, those who are at the helm. But having said this, there is a lot of truth in what uh, these ladies are, 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 are practicing because it's a practice at the end of the day, it's, it's traditional medicine practice. And uh, the WHO had dedicated one department to address to look at this. But I think beyond the WHO, we need to have a department in the Ministry of Health that look at these remedies, because at the end of the day, what we need to do, we need to have a pharmacopoeia, we need to add a scientific framework around this knowledge so that uh, the dosage can be addressed, the side effect can be addressed, and it can help uh, uh, you know, a lot of the local health issues can be addressed through the, through the practices that we have. And you know, interestingly, it makes this medicine accepted and acceptable because it encompasses uh, the tradition, the culture, and what value people bring to that space. Um, so this is what needs to be done. And as I said again and again, by looking at these practices, uh, we are going to pr promote innovation. We're going to promote an industry. And who says industry creates no job. And then if you have this conversation between the university, the training institution, along with the private sector, you are developing a, a new pillar precisely to that particular country, addressing health and, of course, creating proper agriculture, because at the end of the day, you have to grow these plants, so you're tackling agriculture. And you can also, if these plants meet uh, the international norm, you can start exporting as well. But again, these are issues that have to be dealt with locally, nationally, and of course, with the local play, national players, because you still need investment. But what I insist on is the value addition, the transformation has to be done at least partially on the continent. I can see that in these scientific frameworks that you point out that, that are needed, I imagine they would create a systematic way of actually clinically testing these products, these uh, plants to see what value they have to the nation. And of course, having legal frameworks to protect all of that, to make sure that when it's exploited, it will benefit the community or the people who are actually contributing this knowledge. And great point you make also, the WHO can only do so much, right, in terms of protecting that. If the people, the custodians of that knowledge, the governments, do not actually recognize or put in place structures to protect it, you know, nothing will change. We will continue to lose this very, very critical resource without taking good uh, advantage of it. But, but the thing so, I'd just like to add quickly is that, you know, uh, the fact that these plants have been used for millennia in some in some countries, they have they already tried and tested. So it's a shortcut to developing something fast yes. because they have already been in use. And one thing as well that we have to uh, really look at uh, traditional knowledge is that because we're operating in the space of climate change, yes. these traditional knowledge can help create a third way, a third way so that we can use a past knowledge to help us adapt. And if we don't document it, if we don't put value to it, we're going to lose it and to our own risk and peril, to our own detriment. 
Yes, and it looks like there are actually there's so many benefits to doing this. A simple thing like just documenting what we have and just asking the question, what value does it have to us? You know, we can start to solve so many problems in agriculture, in value addition, in, in so many areas of our economies. So, Madam President, if our health and our survival are closely linked to our biodiversity, a point that you make so often do we have in africa have we created systems for harnessing the value of medicinal plants and and if not are there efforts right now to get that done is there recognition that this is something that is greatly needed i think uh, increasingly uh, there are many uh, researchers now trained researchers in many uh, countries i think there is the awareness the awareness is growing but I think, as I said, again, the awareness may be growing, but we need investment. We need the space. We need these centers of excellence that can do the testing locally. So we need to start putting our hands in our own pocket and create that ecosystem. And uh, again, uh, as I've said, and you rightly said, I've said that many times and I will say it again, biodiversity underpins our life in this planet. And why do we need biodiversity? I think it's very, very simple. You know, we, we live off the byproduct of nature. And one of the byproduct is oxygen that we breathe. And now if you look at, in fact, yesterday, um, the United Nations, they have put the Great Barrier Reef as one of the most uh, sites which are endangered. It's true. Uh, you can argue, they can bring in the semantic to say, you know, we've done so much and all the rest of it, but the facts on the ground remain. And how many of these sites in Africa, they are run down because we haven't, again, looked at them very seriously. And why, again, do we need to protect biodiversity? Is that this diverse array of life on Earth, you know, underpin our, our existence because we are the apex species, right? And one thing is, again, that has been highlighted precisely in the COVID is that, you know, nature doesn't need us. We need nature. When we were in, in our houses, we couldn't go out. The animals were roaming the, our cities. So we mustn't, we mustn't think that we live outside the ecosystem, the, the ecosystem and we can tame the ecosystem. We are very much part of these species forming part of this entire chain of life on earth. And we are no special because we're the apex species. It doesn't mean that we have the arrogance to say that we are special, we're not. We're just one of these species and we depend. We are highly interconnected, we are linked. And if you look at uh, the, what the, 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 they're now saying in terms of the source of the COVID, if the initial argument that it came from a bat, which has, uh, you know, the, the virus has jumped into a, an animal and onto us, it shows that we are indeed very, very vulnerable. So how do we protect our forests? How do we stay away? from this source of, uh, of, of bacteria, of virus, you name it, we are, going, we, are, we are threatened, but we don't see it that way. We tend to think that we are, you know, we are so arrogant that, you know, we, we can control anything, but we're not. Yes, and um, it really is critical. And, and it brings us back to the issue of accountability in terms of the decisions that are made at a national level on behalf of the people and how those decisions affect the people, their health, their well-being. We see projects like the Okavango Delta. There has been an announcement to explore for oil 
in the Okavango Delta, which is straddling Namibia and uh, Botswana, one of the most pristine and beautiful natural habitats for plants and animals in Southern Africa. Projects like this, are they inevitable? Are they unavoidable? How do nations, how do leaders, governments balance the need to protect these very precious natural resources with the economic interests that are obviously driving those decisions to say it's okay to explore this UNESCO heritage site that is home to so many valuable species of plants and birds in our region. I think again, we need to really look at uh, why do we need to do this exploration? Is it for oil? Again, the policy at the level of the continent, how are we going to change and move on to renewables? Do we have the right policy? And uh, nowadays green energy is, uh, is generating uh, growth. Uh, it's not as if you need to have, uh, you know, you need to go back to fossil fuel uh, to grow your economy. The economy can still grow. So again, this goes all the way up in terms of decisions which are taken, uh, sometimes not just nationally, but regionally, and also at continental level. What is the, 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 the policy that we're going to have for Africa? Are we going to move on towards renewables? What policies do we have in place? What investment do we have in place? And uh, this is how we're going to move un until and unless we have the right uh, policy decision at a certain level, we will keep on doing things piecemeal. Of course, not, don't, don't forget that there is a lot of vested interest in uh, moving ahead with this. But at the end of the day, it comes back again to the people. It comes back to us, individual, citizen. How do we accept? And if you look at what's happening in North America, and the movement of people. At the end of the day, we have to reconcile with the fact that the power is with the individual and we can make a change. And we have to make that change by speaking out and asking questions. Governance matter. How do we communicate with our leaders also matter. But at the end of the day, you still need to have the facts. You still need to have the data. And this is again where the weakness comes back to us again because we wouldn't have generated the data. So how can we actually uh, engage the discussion when it's not fact-based? So these are the questions we need to ask ourselves. Absolutely. You point out that this is something that, of course, people at the local level would have to speak out and ask questions about how those decisions impact their lives. But at a higher level, at a continental level, that there is a need to think about the energy policy of the continent and, of course, preservation of all of these natural resources of the continent. You have spoken about Mauritius as a potential bridge between Asia and Africa and how it could play a facilitating role in those relationships in terms of finding uh, partnerships to solve some of Africa's most pressing health challenges. Could this be an area where Mauritius being obviously quite aware and walk to the value of this uh, could be leading in conversation with other, other African nations in terms of coming up with a plan, how to actually make sure that these resources are better protected on a continental level? Um, you know, uh, we have 50 plus uh, years of uh, post-independent history and we have started investing in some institutions. 
regulatory bodies. We've tried to bring in, for example, arbitration and many other, other, other issues. I think what Mauritius can, can help play is, again, one partner in, uh, in, in, these, uh, in, in this decision, uh, in the projects which are happening. Uh, we used to have uh, a very prime uh, sugar sector uh, where we had trained many people. Uh, unfortunately, for many reasons, we've had to uh, stop production of, of sugar as we have known it in terms of uh, because the market wasn't there. Uh, but uh, we still have the resources, we still have the trained manpower. Uh, I think this is where we can bring our contribution in areas where we are strong. Uh, we can again partner and uh, we want, for example, to develop our agriculture sector, as I said, uh, Africa, East Africa, closest to East Africa is land. So how can we partner to advance this cause? So I think this is where, again, the partnership uh, with those institutions which, are, which have matured, which have emerged, along with our counterpart on the continent, we can help bring our own uh, kind of uh, block to the, to the, to the building of, of, of a brighter future for, for our continent. So it's all down to partnership and how we can negotiate and how we can go together. Again, I go back to the all African adage. If we want to go fast, we go alone. If we want to go far, we go together. In the context of this pandemic right now, Mauritius has a very close relationship, very close social and economic ties to India and countries that have some of the solutions that we need. We see that Africa is not going to get vaccines at least until 2023 at a minimum. That's all things being equal. And so those partnerships are going to be quite critical in terms of you know, thinking about how we solve big problems. Mauritius has a very competitive financial sector, the attractive tax, tax incentives, uh, high ease of doing business index. What role could that play in terms of attracting the investment that would be needed in Africa to develop all these capabilities? For instance, if Africa is to go towards the vaccine manufacturing route and needs all kinds of partners, what role do you think Mauritius could play in that partnership? We have a fairly sophisticated financial uh, sector, but we have to flag in increasingly governance and transparency in, in everything that, that we do, especially in that because we are under the microscope uh, of, of the world when uh, these kind of financial flows are going through our jurisdiction. Uh, but I think one thing I will ask again, a very, very blunt question, where are the sovereign wealth of African countries kept? Are they kept in Africa? I don't think so. So if we want to, again, look uh, towards building, again, this African narrative, let us act, let us do something about it. And let us, for example, look at where the financial, the sovereign funds kept. And uh, so these are things that, again, as I said, uh, we have these, uh, we have worked, we have developed a certain, uh, a certain uh, human capital train in these areas. We can put that at disposal. In fact, we have been doing that at least in the tourism sector because uh, tourism sector has been a very thriving sector and has contributed over 25% of our GDP. Uh, we have uh, developed the institutions who could train the personnel. Uh, so again, this is where we can contribute, we can collaborate with the other prime tourist destination on the continent. So again, it's all about partnerships of exchange, but more importantly, let us really address the fundamentals of whether we really mean business when it comes to dealing with African resources, 
Where are they being transformed? Who is it benefiting in the, in the final analysis? Relook at our structures, relook at our governance, relook at our ways of showing accountability. So these are the values we have to go back to. And I think this is what the COVID has shown again. How do we value this and how do we actually look at our human capital? Because this is our best resources, the minds of the African child, the mind of the African youth. How do we use this mind to actually make a difference? And it's possible, it's doable. But again, we need to invest in them so we can retain them. Yes. And, you know, just thinking about the issue of food security, for instance, right? I mean, there's so much that, that needs to be done. Africa remains a net importer of food. You spoke about value addition. We have 60% of the world's remaining arable land that is uncultivated. And yet we have more than 100 million Africans who go to bed hungry every day. And so what are some of the concrete actions we've spoken about these problems we've spoken ad infinitum ad nauseum what can we do what concrete actions do we need to be taking african nations should be taking with the people holding them accountable to make food production more sustainable to make africa more resilient towards the shocks that we are constantly experiencing Africa imports over 40 billion worth of agro-produce every year. And uh, again, this is not the, the kind of money that you should be exporting. This is the kind of money we should be generating, plowing back into our soil to make agriculture a thriving sector for the continent. The food, uh, if we have, for example, a mountain of rice in one region, I don't see why they can't export it in, within Africa itself. That's why the free trade has been signed so that we can. But again, it boils down to investment and also changing the narrative around uh, ag African agriculture. Because so far, the stereotype has been such that it pushes the, the young people away from that sector. And yet, uh, it's, it's a major sector that can create jobs for youth and create food security, and also looking at natural resources, uh, preserving the tradition, and there's so much that Africa can export to the world in terms of new uh, innovative uh, food stuff that, can, that are coming from Africa. In fact, some of the businesses of the diaspora has been to precisely add value to homegrown uh, food stuff. Uh, on the continent, exporting it out to, to, uh, to, to the rest of the world. So why can't this be done locally? But again, it boils down to equipping our young people with the appropriate tools for them to make a difference to their own livelihoods and by so doing to the rest of the country, to the rest of the continent. And of course, Madam President, that $40 billion that you, you mentioned, that is exported out of Africa as a result of the structure. The cost is a lot bigger than that when you think about the result of African people making the food choices that is driven by all of those factors. We are seeing major, major increases in metabolic disorders like diabetes, a huge public health time bomb that is facing Africa right now. And when that bill comes, it's going to be way bigger than 40 billion. How did you think about this issue of dire educating communities to appreciate the value of our own traditional foods and for health? 
Well, Mauritius, we are very much dependent on import, unfortunately, because of the sheer size of our, of our land area. Uh, but we try to remain uh, self-sufficient, at least for vegetables, except when there's a crisis that we have to import. So we have uh, dedicated some land, at least for the uh, for the vegetable and some fruit, but not many. Uh, but uh, I will just share with you a small st a story. In fact, it's, it's a true story um, of uh, a, a region in Africa where they were doing some epidemiological studies for the HIV at the time. And they found that those people who were living in the rural areas in some parts of Africa, and they were consuming their own traditional diet, you know, of millet, of sorghum, uh, cassava, and, you know, vegetables, uh, indigenous vegetables, indigenous crops. These people, they did not develop full-blown AIDS. Whereas those living out in the cities where they were consuming fast food, refined foods, they developed full-blown AIDS faster. So this is the question that we need to ask ourselves. What value are we adding to our own traditional recipes, traditional foods? In fact, if you look at a corporate like uh, Nestle, for example, they are themselves trying to tropicalize some of the ingredients. They are introducing increasingly for the African market, sorghum, millet, and you name it. But why can't we adopt a much healthier uh, food habit than what we have been doing so far? I mean, do we always have to uh, say that by eating fast food, we are more sophisticated? And uh, what campaign are we, are we engaging on the continent with the young people uh, to make them eat traditionally? I mean, again, there's a, a whole education that has to be done on the eating habits, but we need to start from home. We need to start with our community to make sure that you know, the, the good, the good uh, habits are maintained. And more importantly, how do we document and how we keep on promoting the growth of indigenous vegetables? There's so many that's there that can make a difference to the health habit, address hidden hunger, but not enough cultivation, not enough propagation, not enough value addition to these crops. So that's where, uh, you know, that's where it, it's, it hurts because it's literally hurting our food habits, hurting our health uh, because we're not uh, really adding value to, to that. Yes, absolutely. And it, it comes back, Madam President, to a point that you made earlier about external influences and so forth. Perhaps just to finish. So just last to finish our podcast, we usually like to ask our guests to leave us with, um, with some actionable points. So I would like to ask you, Madam President, if you could make a case for us for why African nations need to protect health which means protecting our environment our food systems sustainable development why are all those important things so critical to protecting our economies making them more resilient i think you mentioned um, an entire mindset change i think it's happening it's happening more and more and uh, we need to really look at our own resources. Uh, we need to look at our own people because at the end of the resources is not enough. We need to empower our, our own people, our youth, uh, capitalize our institutions so that the tools are there. And uh, one thing, I think the overarching thing that I have to leave when I, before I end this conversation is we need to increasingly say, I'm proud to be African. 
I'm proud to be uh, who I am. And I'm proud to be, I'm proud of my ancestors. I'm proud of the knowledge that they have bequeathed and that I'm going to take the torch forward. And once we start saying this, we start, we stop emulating something else that we are not. I think this will be the day that uh, the penny will drop, as they say, and we'll see a better, a more prosperous future because we will be happy to be who we are. And we are proud to be who we are because we are Africans. Perfect way to end. President Amina Gurib Fakim, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I'll be